Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, lovely to be amongst you again this weekend. If you weren't here last week, why weren't you? <laughs> Craig? No, no, it's lovely to see you all and it's lovely to be with you. Uh, if you're um, a clock watcher, don't press the button yet. As I said last week, just pause on your watch for a second. Um, I just want to say, two weeks in a row I've been here early and I've watched little moments of Christian inspiration. Uh, and I don't know whether you see them very often or not, but we just had an example of one down here with Tony dancing up the front. I, I just think she's amazing. Tony, oh, sorry, I thought you'd already gone. <laughs> Oops. Now, um, I'm trying to say nice things while you're not here. Um, but but it, you know, to see people come in the morning and put out chairs and you know to pick up trailers at seven o'clock in the morning and all those sorts of things. It's not like the Matildas winning last night, is it? You know, 10 penalty goals. Anybody can do that. <laughs> right? But it's the little moments of love and service for one another that I think are truly inspirational. And you have an inspirational church here. Um, Almost at every level when you look around, there are inspirations everywhere. So make sure you keep your eyes open and see those inspirations as an encouragement for yourselves and aspire to be an inspiration for someone else as well. Okay? Um, we're on a boat ride. You might remember last week I said we're going on a boat ride with Jesus. He's been, he'd been um, giving parable sermons uh, on one side of the lake and uh, you mustn't forget those and I'm assuming you all went home and read your Bibles and read the parables to kind of connect them because all the Bible has a context and we want to read these things in context and uh, after the day of preaching on parables he got on a boat and they sailed across through a storm and today we come to Mark chapter 5 and if you've got your Bibles open that would be good. You should have an outline for the sermon as well in your bulletin and I, I don't know whether you notice these as you come through but there's a care and communication card. Um, I don't know you well enough to know whether or not all of you are converted um, and some of you may not actually have given your life to Jesus but there's a little card here that after today you might say, actually this Jesus guy, I need to put him at the centre of my life and I need to get a bit more advice on that. This little card, you can actually write your name on it, tick a little box, says today I committed my life to Christ or I would like to do the Truth Explored course. Um, that'd be a great opportunity for you to take the Christian faith a little bit further if in fact you're a little lost with it at the moment, okay? Um, and uh, that'd be great. How about I pray and then we'll, you can press the button on your watches. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Please grant that we might see him in all his glory today. As he deals with the things that challenge us, 
as he who calms the storm even overcomes the spiritual realm. Grant to us, Father, that we might see Jesus this morning. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Um, we may use expressions like, I have come to terms with my demons. Has anyone ever said that? You ever use that expression? But if Jesus' confrontation with a demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5 is any guide, it is clear that demons do not accept terms. That said, God doesn't accept terms either with demons. So it's no surprise that a war of spiritual dimensions follows. This moment in Mark 5 had its genesis somewhere between God declaring a very good creation in Genesis 1 verse 31 and Satan, the serpent's appearance in Genesis chapter 3. Satan's name, of course, means adversary or accuser. Uh, that, that word is derived from a verb that is to obstruct or oppose. Putting together a biblical collage of Satan's work, he outwits, masquerades, tempts, leads astray, lies. He is with the demons an angel who sinned in 2 Peter chapter 2. And according to Jude 6, verse 6, he is an angel who did not stay within his own position of authority. And as Mark 3 describes him as the prince of demons, he clearly doesn't work alone. Together, Satan and his demons... Uh, uh, their adversarial behaviour is first and foremost directed against God, characterised by the pride that is at the heart of all sin, human sin. They, like us, refusing refuse to accept their assigned place as creature before their Creator. Got that? I wonder if you've done that, refused to accept your assigned place as creature before your creator. Of course, you must if you ever want to be saved into an eternal future. Unsurprisingly, Satan and his demons look to occupy God's space and that includes in people's lives. I mean, really, that's a better way of putting it, isn't it? Satan seeks to occupy God's space with himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been walking around Cairns for the last week or so, and there are a myriad number of people in Cairns all seeking to occupy God's space with themselves. Satan and his demons seek to keep people in bondage to temptation, guilt and fear. They are proficient with accusations 
to condemn and to hold people in their fear of death to a life of grasping desperation and hopelessness. You might have known, even as a Christian, that experience where you get that little kind of word in the back of your head, how can you possibly call yourself a Christian? And you live like that? You speak like that? You treat your spouse like that? How can you possibly claim to be a Christian? Ever had that accusation come your way in any area of your life? There's a very big difference between Satan and the Holy Spirit, isn't there? (laughs) Hello? You ought to go, yeah, okay? There is. Satan is an accuser with a view to condemning you, isn't he? The Holy Spirit is what? He is not a con- an accuser. He is what? A what? He's a comforter, but he convicts you of your sin, doesn't he? So that you will repent of it such that there will be no condemnation for you. There's a very big difference between the way Satan works and the Holy Spirit works. Yes, there'll be times when you're convicted about your sin. Praise God for that. That's the Holy Spirit and a testimony of God's work in your life. But it should produce repentance and faith and that wonderful truth that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, that's not the devil's work. He is an accuser who seeks to condemn and destroy. Um, The parable of the sower, of course, in chapter 4, indicates his primary warfare tactic. What is it? Satan steals away God's gospel word sown. He silences the gospel in whatever way he can. That said, all of this said, it is a mistake to appoint to demons and to Satan all sin, isn't it? You don't have to have a demon of gossip to be a gossip, do you? There are some people who constantly want to cast out demons all the time. You know, oh, you gossip, oh, I'm going to cast out the demon. You don't need a demon to be a gossip, you can just do it on your own. You can watch pornography without having the demon of pornography. You can do that on your own and you ought to stop. Or you can be greedy. Who's greedy in this congregation this morning? Is there anyone other than me? Now, I don't think that I have a demon, but I can do greed on my own quite sufficiently. But having said that, It is worth realising that dabbling in the space where Satan resides can open doors to things worse than we could imagine, like the world of the demoniac here in chapter 5. I have to admit to being troubled by the trivialisation of the demonic for scary entertainment, as if it is fiction desensitising us to its reality. The demonic is not fiction. I can't tell you how concerned I am as a Christian leader when people dabble in the occult as if it were just 
a little bit of fun. Tarot cards, seances, star guides. I always think star guides are ridiculous. You know, you read your star guide. Today you're going to meet somebody tall, dark and handsome who's a brilliant speaker. Well, there you go. It's, it's happened, hasn't it? Can you imagine the sorrow of seeing Christians dabble in things that betray faith in Christ? You don't have to call back your loved ones from the dead in a seance, do you? You rest by faith in Christ that they're in his care. And you entrust them into his care and you leave them there and you get on with your life living for Christ. I don't know if I've said this to you before, but I'll say it again today. It really concerns me when Christians take little forays into the darkness where we just dabble with sin. And we make a little foray into the darkness like it doesn't matter. But I want to say to you, in the darkness, you can get lost there. Unless God, in his infinite mercy, shines the light to let you come out of that darkness. Don't dabble. Well, before we get off the boat and onto the beach, you're wondering if we're ever going to get to the passage, aren't you? A number of things are worth noting. Firstly, demons don't appear very often in the Old Testament. But when they do... They are never effectively dealt with. Please underline that. So, for example, King Saul, you might remember, had an evil spirit that tormented him and left him when David played the harp. But it always returned, remember? The demon was kept quiet, but it still tormented Saul. That history of, of the inner... Effective makes this moment on the beach on the other side of the lake in Mark chapter 5 really significant. Because if you know your biblical history, Jesus is going to be both decisive and effective in dealing with the demons. So as we get out of the boat with Jesus, the reality of the natural and the spiritual realm confront us. And as it does, I've always, I have always wondered where the disciples are as a wild, violent, loud and uncontrollable man possessed by an unclean spirit or unclean spirits came from the cemetery straight at them. They're clearly present, aren't they? Because they were on the boat with Jesus. But where are they in the text? Perhaps they saw what was coming and are fighting over who should look after the boat. Maybe they planned to put out from the beach a little, just like Jesus asked them to do when he preached. Whatever is happening for them, I would do what they do when faced with the demonic. And I hope you get this. 
I would get behind Jesus. There's no bravado that comes for us as Christians when it comes to dealing with the demonic, and there is the demonic in the world, although in Western culture we no longer believe in the devil. Alfred Olwer from Uganda once was with my friend Michael Rader and he went out and to do an exorcism. And Michael said to him the next morning, why didn't you ask me to go with you? He said, oh, you Westerners don't believe in Satan and the demonic. Because we've got so used to not being confronted by it. But I dare say as we become less Christian as a nation, you're going to see a rise in the demonic. And as we deal with the demonic, you must deal with it from behind Jesus. That's your only safe place. Here's a lesson. Always deal with the demonic from behind Jesus. There is this, of course, is no place for cowardly unfaithfulness against in the face of a stormy sea like we saw last week. No, when dealing with the demonic, it's time to remember that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So as Paul put it in Ephesians 6, strapping God's truth, shod yourself with the gospel of peace, shield up with faith, remember your salvation, and unholster the sword of the spirit, which is God's word. Now, I don't think Jesus was looking for unclean spirits on this particular day. But he certainly seems to attract them, doesn't he? Jesus seems to attract the demonic, doesn't he? But I don't think the increase in demonic activity should surprise us. As the king of the kingdom of God comes into the world, Satan and his demons react to that king. I find it interesting that on Jesus' first visit here too, to a Gentile region, the region of the Gadarenes, that his first encounter is with the demonic in the unclean world. And I want to suggest that perhaps we get a glimpse here into Jesus' intentions for the whole world, not just Israel but that the gospel ultimately will bring freedom and joy and salvation, not to just Israel, but to all the people of the world. But in this encounter, the aspirations of Christ, you might have noticed, contrast the aspirations of Satan. Notice from where the man comes. Did you see it? From the place of the dead, the cemetery. From the graveyard. He is alone, he's loud, he's violent, he's powerful, and he's self harming. Isn't that interesting? Verse 5 Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with rocks. And in this moment of confrontation, the big question really here in Mark 5 is not one of the demons, which of course fascinate us, don't they? I want to know all about the demons. That's not the point of Mark 5. The point of Mark 5 is that you might learn more about Jesus. He's meant to live big, not have us just fascinated in a spiritual evil realm. 
So in the, this moment of confrontation, the big question is not the one is not one of demons, but that of the disciples after the storm. Who is this Jesus? That's the big question. What is staggering is um, what this violent, out-of-control, self-destructive individual does and says. Now, I hope you've got the picture so far. You still with me, everybody? Yeah? Or have you switched your watch off already and said, I'm sleeping now? Okay, you're all right? Okay. Because we read these passages all the time and they just kind of gloss over, but don't let this gloss over you. Because what is staggering is what this violent, out-of-control, self-destructive individual does and says in verses 6 and 7. When he saw Jesus from afar... You see this? What did he do? He ran and fell down before him. Now, I want to suggest to you that that is a very odd thing. See, no one could bind him in the town. He broke chains. Entire communities kept their distance from this bloke. Yet now, before one man, he falls down. Which is not so surprising when you hear what he cries out in a loud voice. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? It always staggers me that the demons know exactly who Jesus is while everyone else is trying to work it out. Hello? Don't think, though, that this is a friendly encounter. The loud approach... The use of Jesus' name and title are all attempts by the demons to dominate at this point and intimidate Jesus. And yet the falling down is in the end an angry resignation that Jesus is in fact in charge. And that's worth pondering, isn't it? Jesus Christ, who Christians love, is in charge of things that we really have very little understanding of. I've got to say to you, I don't really understand the spirit world beyond the natural. We certainly are introduced to it in the Bible, and I believe in it. I absolutely believe in it. That's what Christians do. We believe in the spiritual realm. I don't really understand it all that well. But I have to say... That Jesus being in charge of this fills a Christian like me with confidence and assurance that even what we don't understand can't hurt us when it comes to Christ. And I want to suggest to you there is a word for a child who wakes up from a nightmare or an adult who may be living one. What you don't understand, you can have confidence that Christ does. And he is watching over you in. But then even on his knees before Jesus, you might notice the unclean spirit is still trying to control things. Did you see that? 
Oh, we're control freaks, aren't we? All of us. Is that right? I want to control things. I want it done my way. And the demons are no different at that level. They're still trying to be in control. Swear to God that you won't torture me. This is not the sweet surrender that comes with faith, brothers and sisters. Of course, that's not a behaviour, of course, confined to unclean spirits, is it? There are plenty of people who know that God is in charge but still think that they can bark out their orders at him. As we watch this encounter, I think we can learn that that really is an unwise practice. So if you're barking orders at God at the moment, back off would be my advice. Now it's important to notice here that as Jesus asks what is your name, that it's not the man to whom he is speaking but the unclean spirits who reply, my name is Legion for we are many. So I guess what we hear here is a kind of spokes spirit for all the spirits that inhabit this man's life. And if there is one for every pig, then there are 2,000 of them that inhabit this man. They seem like maggots feeding on the flesh of an almost corpse. That's enough to make you throw up your breakfast, isn't it? This incident is not an encounter between Jesus and the man, but between Jesus and the spirits. Did you get that? Because I'm about to say something very important. This incident is not an encounter between Jesus and the man, but between Jesus and the spirits. Now listen carefully. But it is an encounter with the spirits for the man. Did you hear that? And as the issue of who's in charge is clarified, the unclean spirits begin to beg to be sent into the herd of pigs and Jesus gives them permission and unclean spirits go into unclean animals and they rush into the sea and drown and in that moment we see the destructive purposes again of the demons. Now, we've got a problem now, haven't we? So let me just put it this way. Rather than worry about the piggies, okay, alright, please note the contrasting outcomes for the man. And I might be in the midst of great environmentalist and animal liberation people at this point. Well, if I am, can I just say that the Bible puts man at the pinnacle of creation and values man above animals. Does that make sense? That, interestingly enough, as we become less and less Christian, is being turned upside down. So rather than worrying about the pigs, please note the contrasting outcomes for this man. Verse 15, the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion of evil spirits, was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged to go with Jesus. 
And Jesus tells him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And I want to ask you to see that when it comes to the spiritual world, there are very different agendas for our lives. The demons keep the man in the tomb. Jesus sends him home to his friends. The demons have the man naked, violent, alone, crying out, cutting himself and out of his mind. Jesus leaves him clothed and in his right mind. The demons mercilessly possess the man. Jesus sends the man to tell of the mercy of God. The demons take everything from the man. Jesus gives the man everything he needs for life. The demons imprison the man. Jesus sets the man free to live and enjoy both God and his family and people. The demons aim to destroy the man's life. Jesus destroys the demons. I don't know about you, but if we were in America, in a church that was big, you would hear them all go, Hallelujah! <laughs> Hallelujah! Of course, in Australia, you say something as magnificent as that, and Australians go, Hmm. <laughs> don't get carried away now, okay? Uh, but let me ask you this, who would you want to spend eternity with when you leave this natural world? The demons or with Jesus? Unlike every ineffective attempt to deal with demons in the past, now we see the one who deals with them completely. Who is this? Well, I can tell you. That where the word of a king is, there is power. His mustard seed kingdom of God is a tree in which birds can nest, sailors can find calm, and a once demonically possessed man finally finds his rest. And don't miss the pastoral value of all of this. You know, I can still hear the disciples in the boat's question of Jesus last week, a reputational question. Don't you care if we drown? No such question is asked on the beach. But the reputation of Jesus is challenged. And while the calming of the sea answered the disciples' question, the setting free of the man with the, demon, with the demons meets the challenge, doesn't it? Jesus Christ is deeply concerned for people like you and I. He wants us to have the best life, not the broken life. He wants us clothed and in our right mind. You don't have to be a demon-possessed person, do you, to be wrong-minded. You can't live, though, the best life if your mind is closed to the mercy of God in his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, if it wasn't for Jesus, this demon-possessed man would still be in the tombs cutting himself. 
Again, listen. Jesus will take this battle with Satan through the Garden of Gethsemane to the cross and beyond. And if it wasn't for Jesus' ultimate act of kindness, dying on a cross and rising from the dead, there could only be in our world more self-harm as we go on living unforgiven, shamefully and eternally attached to all our bad mistakes, guilt following us everywhere and undoing us, foolishness betraying us daily, dividing us and leaving us despairingly out of our minds. Thanks be to God. Terrified, the disciples in the boat ask, who is this? The demons beg to go into the pigs. Terrified on the beach, the people of the region beg Jesus to go away. And yet clothed and in his right mind, the healed man begs to go with Jesus wherever he goes. Of course, Jesus doesn't let him, does he? But in, the power, in a powerful twist of words, Jesus tells him to go and tell people all that the Lord had done for him. And we're told that he went and told people all that, hello, all that Jesus had done for him. Who is this Jesus? He's Lord. That's the point. He is the king. And when next Jesus came to the region, people of the Decapolis came to him with their sick. You remember now, they're telling him to go away. Please go away. They're terrified of him. They want him to leave. But the next time he comes, they come to him with their sick. One day on the beach, they beg for him to leave. The next, they welcome his return. Why? Well, I think it's because the man did a great job of taking away people's fear of God and introducing them to his care. Go and tell everything that the Lord has done for you. I think he did a wonderful job so that when he came back, people could come to him with confidence. Well, there's clearly two things that are terrifying, I think, in the spiritual world. Unclean spirits and secondly, the God who can destroy them. And there will come a time when all people will live with one of them. The unclean spirits or the God who destroys them. And what I find amazing are the reactions to Jesus in this passage. Here is the one with the authority and mercy to give life and one man wants to go with Jesus while other people in the region are in sentence 15 afraid and in sentence 17 they beg Jesus to go away. So as I finish, what will you do with Jesus? As you learn about what he did here, will you want him to go away or will you tell him, please come in?
I imagine I'm probably talking to the converted and you've already accepted him in. But if I'm not talking to the converted this morning, if you've not given your life to Jesus, now would be a great moment recognising the authority and the power of Christ to make your life better, that you would turn to him and let him in. Without him, there is so much to fear. But with him, you know that he can protect you from all that you fear and promise you a future. May God help us to understand these things. Amen.